Today is uh, Monday, October 3rd. We have an special room indeed. Um, we've got uh, Dr. John Hussman with us. John was here and he disappeared. I don't know where he went. Um, KFAB, did you see where he went? It, it gave the, uh, the connecting thing, so I suspect uh, it might have dropped off. So hopefully it will come back in. Yeah, all right. Hopefully, indeed. Uh, fine. If he doesn't, I'll have to let you run the room for a minute while I go chase him down. Oh, here he is. He's back. There he is. Hey, John. You with us, John? We got you. Yeah, now we got it. All right. <laughs> there you go. By the way, by, by the way, John, you get a you get a you get a gold medal for uh, getting in here so easily. Other first timers had a lot of trouble. Um, and this this app can get a little bit sketchy from time to time. So um, I'm glad you were able to survive it. In any event, um, let's dispense with the usual uh, rant. Um, I can I can do the rant later. I just want to get into it because uh, we're very privileged to have John with us. He's probably no stranger to most of us here. Um, I've been a huge uh, fan of his and an avid reader for decades now. Um, and so let's just get into it. So um, I want to read from John's um, recent, uh, one of his most recent pieces. Um, and by the way, the title of, 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 of uh, The Room, Now Comes the Hard Part, uh, that's from his uh, September 25th um, uh, piece, urge you, uh, no uncertain terms, most definitely go to Hussman funds to, uh, to read his analysis. I can't think of, uh, I mean, look, predict as Yogi bear famously once said, John, you know, predictions are difficult, particularly about the future. <laughs> and, you know, it's always, as we all know, um, as I can't remember who said it, you know, you can predict the price and a date, but never two together. So timing can always be difficult, Absolutely. but I want to start, I want to start off. I want to trigger you by reading uh reading reading something you wrote recently this is a quote from uh um business week 1929 this was the lead-in of one of your recent pieces i think it was from august this is the longest period of practically uninterrupted rise in security prices in our history the psychological illusion upon which it is based though not essentially new has been stronger and more widespread than has ever been the case in this country in the past this illusion is summed up in the phase, the new era. Kathy Wood, please call your office. The phrase itself is not new. Every period of speculation rediscovers it. During every preceding period of stock speculation and subsequent collapse, business conditions have been discussed in the same unrealistic fashion as in recent years. There has been the same widespread idea that in some miraculous way, endlessly elaborated but never actually defined, the fundamental conditions and requirements of progress and prosperity have changed, that the old economic principles have been abrogated, that business profits are destined to grow faster and without limit, and that the expansion of credit can have no end. I mean, John, how did you dig that up? That, that by the way, for everyone in the room, is from November 2nd of 1929, all right? So maybe, John, using that as a starting off point, is there really anything new under the sun? Well, uh, there's certainly things that are new under the sun. Every every uh, market cycle and certainly every uh, bubble period, uh, like what I believe we've just witnessed, um, is always based on something real, but that then morphs into its own um, sort of construct. And what's what happened, um, for example. Uh, I, and I'm going to take you back uh, three cycles. One was the tech bubble, which uh, was built on, um, you know, some some really solid developments, obviously, with the Internet and and its onset. Uh, but, um, 
you know, part of that uh, expansion was was real. And, uh, you know, a lot of companies uh, had had enormous revenue growth. Uh, the problem was that prices, as we got into the late uh, 1990s, uh, were accelerating at at multiples of uh, revenue growth and um, and and began to be, um, you know, indiscriminate about whether companies were actually companies or whether uh, in one case, for example, they were nothing but, um, you know, but a company that had one asset, which was a rundown hotel in the Cayman Islands that was being sold as an internet incubator and had billions of dollars of market cap. So, you know, what, what happens is that people get excited uh, and they, the story takes on a life of its own. And as valuations become extreme, uh, people look at those extreme valuations and they see prices going even higher. And the fact that prices have gone higher despite extreme valuations makes people come to the conclusion that valuations don't matter. It's kind of like going up, you know, uh, a roller coaster where it's so and you look back over your shoulder and all you see is that I've gone up and I've gone up higher and I've gone up higher. And as long as you're thinking about the, you know, rear view, you're not thinking about what's ahead. And so, uh, you know, every period of speculation has that feature where valuations go too far. Um, you know, if, if extreme valuations, if rich valuations alone were enough to stop the market from rising further, you could have never gotten to the extremes we got in 1929 or 2000 or earlier this year or, you know, 2007. So um, so valuations alone uh, are important, but there's also that speculative psychology um, within that. Uh, the forces that drive that speculative psychology are always different. You know, in the housing bubble, it was. Greenspan dropped interest rates to 1% after, um, you know, the 2000-2002 decline. And investors looked around and they said, I can't live on 2%, uh, 1%. I've got to get a pickup. And so they found that pickup in mortgage securities and drove um, mortgage securities higher. And uh, a lot of funding went to the mortgage market and Wall Street was only too happy to create new product, which required new loans, which required no doc lending and other things like that and and lowering of credit standards, hence credit bubble and uh, global financial crisis. This time, something different again. Uh, so the, the, the Fed having created uh, the housing bubble and and being viewed as its savior uh, afterward, which was actually not true at all. Uh, we just got rid of mark to market in, in March of 2009, which is when the bottom came in because banks were no longer liable to being insolvent if you don't mark to market, as the Federal Reserve should know today, given that its balance sheet probably has uh, roughly a trillion dollars of losses on it, uh, that they don't mark to market either. Uh, so, you know, after the 2007-2009 collapse, we got Bernanke going with zero interest rate policy. And I think the one thing that was different, and I write about this a lot because I, you know, I, 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 I lead with, um, 
wanting people to know that I erred in this cycle. I lead uh, with, with wanting people to learn from that error. Uh, and, and what happened with zero interest rates was that, that in every other cycle in market history, there was always a limit to speculation. You could measure it with, you know, you could measure speculation itself with internals, and we can talk about that, and, and I'm sure we will. Uh, but even with internals and looking at, you know, measures of, of speculative pressure, there was always a limit. There was always too much. There was always too stupid. And in this particular cycle, there was no such thing as too extreme. Uh, and so once interest rates hit zero, people couldn't imagine having any, you know, longer, you know, any persistent zero interest holding in their portfolio. They had to go to something else. They had to buy stocks. They had to buy bonds. They bought covenant light uh, securities. They bought Bitcoin, uh, digital Pokemon, as I call them. Uh, you know, they bought all these cryptocurrencies. All of that has been created by the extraordinary discomfort of holding zero interest rates. So yeah, every market cycle has something new under the sun. This cycle, we had zero interest rate policy. And that zero interest yes. rate policy at its peak, uh, you know, in, in January, people were holding 36% uh, of GDP, essentially, in zero interest liquidity that the Fed had pumped out that somebody's got to hold. And they went nuts and they drove valuations to what I view as uh, the most extreme levels in history. And so now we have the indigestion from that. So, John, um, I'm 100 percent with you on that. But so the fact that this this bull market went where no bull market ever went before, like further mm -hmm. and higher and longer. How does that inform you about the way forward? Is there some t symmetry? You know the old adage: the bigger the the, the, the bigger the boom, and the bigger the bust. Is there yeah. any, is there any truth to that in your view? Uh, there is, with a caveat, um, which is which is one of the things that we've used for for decades. It, it it helped us to navigate the tech bubble and crash. It helped us to navigate, you know, the the housing bubble and its crash. Um, you know, one of the things that we know is that when people have the speculative bit in their teeth, when investors have the speculative bit in their teeth, they tend to be really indiscriminate about it. And so one of the ways that we, cry, we try to measure whether there's a bit in people's teeth is by uh, evaluating the uniformity of market action. And it's a signal we extract from thousands of securities and industries and sectors and that sort of thing. But basically, you know, when people are, rolling the dice when people are are you know speculating they tend to speculate in everything and so when you see that the limits kind of come off they came off in uh i think it, a really unprecedented fashion in this cycle and it was it, it, i mean it was really um you know detrimental for us to preempt that with anything with, with any sort of extreme, uh, because we had to wait until the bit dropped out of their teeth, which, you know, which it did, did last year, um, about middle of the year. Uh, and so, you know, we've been in an environment right now where, where valuations are extreme and uh, investors have shifted to risk aversion. In that combination, 
to answer your question, there is a lot of danger, right? Because um, by our measures, uh, we got to valuations uh, at the beginning of this year, which were somewhere between 3.4 and 3.6 times uh, the historical norms that we associate with run-of-the-mill sort of, you know, the, the normal 10%, you know, returns that people have in their heads. Uh, we got to valuations about 3.4 to 3.6 times that. Uh, so our projections for uh, 10-, 12-year returns on the S&P just went positive last week uh, after the decline we've had. Um, so if you look at where we are now, we're still a good amount away from those historical norms. So if you're, you know, if we were to restore historically normal expected returns, uh, then, you know, basically the, the size of your overvaluation is the size of the decline that you need to restore those, you know, normal expected returns. Now, there's nothing to say that we have to get to, you know, 10% expected returns, particularly in an economy that's, you know, growing slower than it used to and so forth. But then again, you know, if, if, if you've got low growth rates and you have low interest rates and, and uh, valuations should be no higher because the low growth rate has already done the trick for you. So maybe expected valuations should be lower than historical norms as well. Not clear. Uh, and, and we can try and quantify some of that. But basically, you know, as a as a as a short sort of sort of uh, rule of thumb, I would say we've got about 60 percent down uh, 50, maybe uh, before we were to get to levels uh, that that would be associated with with historically reasonably attractive returns over 10 percent, uh, which we've seen, you know, even we, we saw even in 2009. Right. So, John, you know, like yourself, I, I, I was taken aback. I never foresaw how far markets could go. Um, and as I reflect on it, and I think you're old enough, and I got a few years on you, but remember when we were kids, you had those big uh, pinball machines in arcades sure. and when the, with the flippers, and when the ball wouldn't go the way you wanted it to, like, you know, some kid would like bang it on the side or pick it up and tilt it one way or whatever. And I kind of think of the whole financial system that way. The Fed just took everything and just, oh, and just, you know, yanked it around. And and going back to the question I asked a minute ago about, you know, the, the bigger the boom, the, big, the bigger the bust. I just, I don't mean to be suits, get out with pitchforks and be too, too uh, puritanical about this whole thing, but there's a price to be paid for this. And people throw the term around malinvestment, whatever. And I look at, you know, you think about everything was priced off of, you know, an absurdly low risk-free rate and how many things were capitalized at that level and how many investment decisions were made either in portfolio on a real basis. And now we're engaging in price discovery. I mean, I don't see how you, how you avoid a, 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 not just a financial market dislocation, but economic dislocation. So your bearish thoughts about the markets, like I know you usually talk about markets, but, if you wanted to riff a little bit on what do you think it means for the economy? Yeah. So, so basically, you know, you have to ask the question, you know, what investments have hurdle rates that are so lousy 
that they can only be financed with zero interest rates, right? Um, so, you know, if you get interest rates down to that level, uh, and that's the only reason you're able to, to take on a project, it's probably not a, a, an economically uh, productive project. And, and in my view, uh, in fact, most of the economic activity um, that was financed by <clears throat> zero interest rate policy is economic activity that re relies on one of two things, very high levels of leverage, so housing, for example, uh, and um, economic activities that, that rely on leveraging up very small differences in return. So that's where you get carry trades and that sort of thing. Uh, and so most of what I think the Federal Reserve's policy has done is to amplify speculation in, um, in low return carry trades and in uh, high leverage uh, sectors like housing. Uh, so, so yeah, when, when you get a normalization of interest rates, when the, when the carry trade comes off and, you know, the, the housing stimulus comes off, you've got some problems to pay. So, for example, if you look at a 30-year mortgage, uh, a 30-year mortgage, uh, you know, a given, say, $1,000 mortgage payment monthly now buys 40% less house than it did a year, year and a half ago. So um, so there are going to be dislocations there. Um, and, you know, we, we saw that in the global financial crisis as well. I don't know whether they'll be the same ones. People today are looking at, um, you know, uh, some European banks and that sort of thing. That might be where uh, the issues come up. But I think actually the big uh, challenge that I'm concerned about is pensions, because, by our estimates, and you you can see this if you look in, um, you know, even our, our most recent comment, um, you know, the decline that we've had to date in passive, you know, investment portfolios, you know, 60, 30, you know, 60, 30, 10 or 60, 40, however you want to define sort of a conventional passive investment portfolio. Um, you know, we got to a point at the valuation extremes earlier this year where interest rates were near zero and valuations were the highest in history for the equity market. Um, you know, our 12 year estimate on a passive investment portfolio was negative. And the decline that we've had has brought those returns back to marginally positive returns for a diversified investment portfolio. The problem there is that your normal pension fund assumption is something like 7% annually. It might be 6.75, might be 6.5 for the conservative estimates, but it's way up there and it's at a level that, um, that is inconsistent with the valuations that we currently see and how those valuations have historically mapped into subsequent returns. So, you know, if you, I mean, you know, if you look at, you know, a bond that's yielding 2%, you know you shouldn't expect more than 2% on that bond over its life. You know, it's you might get it over the short term if the bond price goes up and the yield goes down, but you shouldn't, you know, look at a two-year, you know, I mean, at a bond yielding 2% to maturity and imagine that you're going to get more than 2% to maturity. 
The same kind of thing holds for stocks as well. You can map the level of valuations to the expected returns. And so right now, um, based on valuation me methods that we, you know, that we find best correlated with actual subsequent returns, you know, you're looking at roughly zero expected returns on stocks for the next 10 to 12 years. Um, and about, you know, one and a half percent for a diversified, almost two percent for a diversified portfolio, thanks to the bond portfolio component. Uh, so I don't think that there's a positive expected return to stocks in excess of treasury bonds. I don't think that there's a risk premium there. Uh, and so, you know, so so I think we've got some some dislocations in the pension fund um, space. Uh, and I think we've got some pension shortfalls there. And so and so some of the uh, challenges that I, I see you know, go beyond, you know, the kind of male investment that you're talking about, which, you know, again, you know, housing might may be an example of that. But I think even more broadly, um, you know, we've had sort of an everything bubble that's where where people have gone further and further on the risk curve. Look at CalPERS, you know, CalPERS expanded that tried to expand their expected returns by expanding their risk. But by expanding their risk, they were leveraging what, what we estimated as a negative return. And that comes back to bite. So I think, you know, the, the, the pension space is where I, where I have some real concerns because it has real people behind it. Uh, and I think the Fed has done an enormous disservice to people. Hey, John, two questions. I don't want to turn off to turn over to uh, Kayfabe. Don't worry, that's not his real name. <laughs> and he doesn't look like <laughs> He's actually a nice guy. So, 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 John, two questions. I just want to just to clarify for the audience. When you're talking about, you know, zero returns or small returns, you're talking nominal, correct? Not real. Is, is that right? Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, I'm talking nominal. Real, yeah, right. real is even more negative. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So, so, uh, and so we can, you know, everyone can plug in what they think inflation is going to be. But in real terms, one's looking at, you know, uh, negative returns. Now, let me, let me go to another question. I'm going to turn it to Kayfabe. So, John, if you were... You know, forget about what should happen, all mm -hmm. right? Let's talk about what you think is going to happen, all right? So we can all talk about how the Fed shouldn't have done this and the Fed shouldn't have done that. And, sure. And there are a few out there. I may vie for you actually as being more vocal about that than yourself, but whatever. We're here. We're here and now, all right? Mm -hmm. And I always like to approach the these rooms for the average investor in the room, like what should they be doing, you know, how should they prepare themselves? What do you think, given the degrees of freedom, uh, we've lost degrees of freedom here, and the central banksters, as I like to call them, are sort of stuck. Uh, they got you know inflation fighting on the one hand and, and potentially imploding asset prices on the other. If you had to think about it, you, you, you've watched these guys for years, okay? And you've got run over them, as I have as well. So as you study them and think about from a game theory perspective, what do you think they're likely to try to do and – what, what should the average investor who's just trying to, you know, if not increase, but preserve their, 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 their net worth, what should the average investor do? So two questions. What do you think the authorities are going to do in response to all this? Mm -hmm. I mean, is inflation the way out? Are they going to try and inflate their way out mm -hmm. of this? And then what should the average investor do? All right. So, so two pieces to that. Um, let's, uh, let's uh, flip the, that around for a second. Um, it, it, in terms of investing, Right. You know, it is um, a, a typical course for 
extreme valuations not to come down in a straight line. What they do is you get a sell-off, you get a first capitulation, you get you know weeks or months of recovery, you get another sell-off, you get another you know bounce, you get another sell-off. And so these things unfold in waves. And so the idea that you know, that, oh, well, we've come down enough and it's a bottom and it's a buying opportunity to get out your shopping list and that sort of thing. I think that's uh, I, I think that's uh, going to be a challenging position for people. Um, you know what what I do, uh, frankly, is, you know, I mean, I, I the, the only passive investment that I have is a passive investment in in a set of active strategies. And so that's what I you know, kind of, kind of do, uh, you know, with, with, with everything that I have. Um, but I think in general, uh, investors should uh, contemplate, uh, the expected return that, that the market is offering them at any given time. And yes, we've come down a lot, but the market doesn't, doesn't move by how much, you know, valuation isn't defined by how much the market has come down. It's defined by what is the expected return that stocks are priced to deliver over time. And so, so that second question is still really challenging. Uh, And if you're getting, you know, reasonable, uh, you know, return in relatively safe instruments, um, you know, you should, you should look for, um, I, I think I, I think some some reasonable basis to move away from that. So I'll give you a couple of thoughts on that. Number one, if you look at treasury bonds, longer term treasury bonds, um, it turns out that the entire total return of treasury bonds in excess of T-bills has been earned in periods where either the treasury bond yield has been at least 2% above T-bill yields, or the treasury bond yield has been over the growth rate of nominal GDP. Right now, you don't have either of those. So yeah, you might want to nibble on treasury bonds here, but my impression is that given that uh, you don't have a whole lot of risk premium over T-bills, and you don't have a whole lot of, uh, you know, excess over uh, nominal GDP growth. In fact, in fact, uh, T bond yields is, uh, yields are way under uh, nominal GDP growth. May not be the best time to be expanding your duration uh, in that area. For equities, you know, uh, we we have. Uh, tons of charts that we put out on a regular basis that that uh, provide some indication of what what we would expect uh, long-term returns to look like on say a 10 to 12 year basis uh, generally speaking you haven't gotten a lot out of equities when you have the combination of a poor re- poor risk premium plus upward pressure on risk premiums so right now with internals negative, even, you know, if you if you measure pressure on risk premiums with super simple stuff like, you know, 200 day moving average. Right. At least have something going in your favor. 
if you have nothing going in your favor, then you've got a trapdoor situation. So right now we've got poor risk premiums and we've got upward pressure on risk premiums. Uh, and that's where bad things tend to happen. So if you're an individual investor, um, you know, doing it on your own, uh, it's, it, it, you're, you're not going to uh, get, uh, you, you're going to have to be enormously nimble to, to deal with all of the, you know, sell-offs and rallies and sell-offs and rallies, uh, but you should prepare for that. Uh, my preference right now, obviously, is hedged equity. That's kind of where, you know, where we sort of do our thing uh, in uh, defensive markets. Uh, and so that's kind of that, that's kind of where, you know, where I think individual investors should land. The, the key takeaway is really simple for individual investors. You want to either have a favorable risk premium going for you or you want to have downward pressure on risk premiums. If you have neither, and that's the situation we've been in, you are in a trapdoor situation because a market crash is nothing but an inadequate risk premium that's being pressed higher. And if you look at every market crash in history, that's the signature, inadequate risk premium being pressed higher. So that's kind of where our, our concerns are. Could the market bounce here? Absolutely. We're oversold on a short-term basis. People want, you know, da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. Shorter-term stuff, you're going to see a lot of fluctuation. But the big picture, you want to seek either adequate risk premiums or downward pressure on risk premiums, preferably both. Okay. So that's Thanks for that. number one. Yeah, go no, keep. Keep going, keep going. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you tell me. Right. You tell me some of these. I'm going to end up ranting, and so here's my. Oh, rant. No, go for it. I, no, it's, it's my intention. It's my by design. I want to trigger you. Keep going. So, uh, so, so then the question is: All right, what's what's the Fed going to do? So, you know, here's here's what I find sort of sort of uh, fascinating is that there there's a sort of recency bias in terms of the way that investors are thinking about this market, where they are so ready for the Fed to cave and pivot and that sort of thing. And they aren't really thinking about the fact that inflation is running at 40-year highs. Uh, because the fact is that the Fed has never pivoted to cutting rates when core inflation is 3% higher than the, than, than, than the Fed funds rate. Never. The Fed has never pivoted when core inflation has been one and a half times, half this much above T-bill rates. The, the closest they ever got uh, was, was in 76 when, when uh, the, the uh, uh, core inflation rate was like one and a quarter percent above Fed funds. But that's because unemployment was enormously high. Right. You know, so unemployment is shot above six percent. So either you need six percent unemployment or you need the Fed funds above core inflation uh, to see the Fed pivot. And we don't see any of that. So the likelihood that they're going to pivot to cutting rates in a highly inflationary environment is low. That said, this is the most reckless Fed we've ever seen in our lifetimes. And so you can't rule it out. 
you know, if you learn one thing from me is, is, is learn that, that it is a bad idea to assume that there's a limit to stupidity because the markets will prove you wrong. Uh, and, uh, and the best you can do, I think, is to really focus on those gauges of whether, you know, whether, whether the, uh, you know, speculators have the bit in their teeth or not. Uh, and that, that's not based on whether the market was up or down today. It's really based on much broader uniformity of market action and that sort of thing. Um, you know, even simple moving averages will help, like, you know, uh, 40 week or 20 week or something like that. But try and try and get something right. Uh, that said, um, what's the Fed going to do here? It's got a it's it, like I say, it's it's probably got a trillion dollar loss on its books right now. It does not have to mark that to market. Uh, so it can continue on. Uh, but the likelihood that it's going to shrink its balance sheet rapidly uh, has gone down because the Fed needs to fill that bucket. And the way it's going to fill that bucket is by holding on to those treasury securities and taking the interest on them. And, and ideally, it would like to hold on to them. Right now, it can't even do that because the interest rate that it's paying to banks on their zero interest rate reserves in order just to get those reserves to you know, to 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 not chase securities in order to in order to get uh, their Fed funds rate of over three percent, they've got to pay three point fifteen percent to the banks. So everything that the Fed is making right now on the bonds that are on their books is going right out the door to the banking system. So the Fed is getting more and more insolvent right here. Again, doesn't matter. Nobody's requiring them to, you know, to, to mark anything to market, but it is going to make it more difficult for them to, uh, you know, to, to number one, do a whole lot more on quantitative easing, but also, you know, they're, they're going to be very reluctant to shrink the balance sheet because that's, especially when interest rates come down, because that's kind of how they're going to fill their hole. Um, and they would prefer us not to look at that hole. So, you know, so the Fed's hands are more tied than people are thinking. And I think that recency bias is dangerous because because the Fed, the, the, the Fed's going to have some difficulty doing uh, super, super creative things. Now, it can certainly have creative announcement effects. Right. If you look back at the pandemic, what's fascinating about the pandemic is that you know how much you know how many corporate bonds the fed bought during the pandemic do you have any idea kayfabe would know that i think kayfabe you have to go at it 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 actually wasn't that large i think it was less it was around a billion or not even that high so so junk bonds junk bonds they bought next to nothing all corporate bonds together 14 billion out of in a you know in a 20 you know 20 plus trillion dollar economy in a in a 10 in an 11 trillion dollar uh corporate bond market but the announcement effect the 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 illusion that the fed was going to bail out the corporate bond market by buying corporate bonds by buying junk bonds no less which by the way is a violation of 
of um, the the Federal Reserve Act because you need uh, good collateral against you know against the instruments you buy. Uh, but but you know the the announcement effect of that they never actually carried it out uh, to any significant effect. And the fourteen billion that they did buy was in fact legislated by Congress in the CARES Act specifically for that purpose, because otherwise they don't have the authority to do it, right? Um, what, they, what the Fed did, $14 billion, you know, $14 billion of bond purchases in an $11 trillion corporate bond market was still enough to have a really good announcement effect. So one of the things that you can look for is some really shiny announcement effects from the Fed. Because it's learned that that works. And it, it may actually try and get, if there's emergency legislation, just enough money appropriated by Congress that it can do things that sound remarkable, like buying stocks. But with such a small amount that Congress doesn't care Right, but that has a good announcement effect, and I think uh, we're going to be looking at some smoke and mirrors uh, in Fed policy. But but it's certainly something that, given the success of those announcement effects, we should anticipate in the future. Got it. So I'd like to turn it over to Kayfabe. I know uh, he's he's also a, a, a big admirer of yours. And oh, so Kayfabe, you. Kayfabe, you got a, some questions for uh, John? Yeah, it's a real pleasure. I want to echo what uh, George said. Uh, it's a pleasure to be uh, speaking with you, John. Oh, thanks so much. Um, Likewise, yeah, been, you been guys. Re been, been reading your stuff since the late 90s. So um, so how do you think about, because I, you know, Lacey Hunt's written about this, the, the relative asymmetry of, of monetary policy kind of pushing on the string. That's my words, not his. Yeah. Um, in, in this next downturn, and and I think you just put out even more context as to why that might be the case. How yeah. do you think about the risk of fiscal then kind of, and I've been talking about and conceptualizing it, that they kind of open Pandora's box and moving the demand curve mm. through through fiscal and, and, and that maybe unleashing um, some problems longer term relative to the inflation genie getting out of the bottle. Yeah. That picking up monetary velocity and, you know, mo most of that liquidity has been trapped in the financial system with QE. And if they sure. start going berserk with, with, uh, you know, direct fiscal, how do you think about that risk? So, so it's, it's interesting the, the, the pushing on the string idea, uh, as investors, I'm assuming that, that, um, you know, that's sort of, sort of the audience here, uh, primarily, um, you know, what's, what's fascinating about, um, uh, about fed policies, people forget that the fed was easing the entire way down in 2000, 2002. And then again, the entire way down during 2007, 2009, um, because here's here's the un, unfortunate uh, aspect of, you know, of Fed liquidity is the, the primary way that zero interest liquidity, which is what the Fed creates unless it's paying interest on it, um, you know, the primary way the Fed sort of sort of, quote, supports the market is by creating stuff that nobody wants to hold right uh and so basically you know if 
if people don't want to hold zero interest rate liquidity and the Fed creates a lot of it, as it did, you know, by early this year, again, about 36 percent of GDP was zero interest to liquidity. Um, somebody has to hold it. If you try and walk your way into the stock market with it and say, I want to put this into stocks, that zero interest liquidity goes right back out in the hands of a seller. Somebody's got to hold it. Uh, and so the way that the Fed's sort of zero interest liquidity and QE and zero interest rate policy, the way all that works, so to speak, is by making people uncomfortable enough to reach out for greater risk. There's a prerequisite to that, which is that people have to be willing to rule out the possibility of capital loss because otherwise zero is a good number. And so the only way that Fed liquidity, the Fed easing supports the market is provided that people are already in a speculative mood. And, and you know, we have charts on this uh, that basically show that the only support that, you know, the only time that easy money supports the market is if, if market internals are positive already. Um, if you've got a situation where people have shifted to risk aversion, the Fed has a problem because in a risk averse market, people don't look at safe liquidity as an inferior asset. They look at it as a desirable one. And so creating more of this stuff just doesn't force them out on the risk curve. And so what we'll see, you know, in a big, heavy market decline, if we get a recessionary decline, is that unless, you know, unless people are really able to see the other side of it um, in, you know, and, and the reason they could during the pandemic was because of CARES, because of a $3.7 billion, I'm sorry, $3.7 trillion, um, you know, government spending program, right? If people can't see the other side of it, then, then Fed easing itself is not going to do much to support the market. People should have learned that during, you know, the tech collapse and the housing collapse. But again, they've got a recency bias that says that the Fed holds the market up and they haven't asked how. Uh, so, so what will happen, you know, is that in, a, in an economic downturn, if, uh, if, the, if Fed easing is not successful in pushing people out on the risk curve, and it typically is not, then you do need something else and you need, the, you, you need a Band-Aid over whatever, whatever's bleeding. So during the pandemic, what was bleeding was uh, people's income. And so you had to, uh, you know, you had to replace people's income with, you know, fiscal stimulus. And that's what we did. Um, during the housing crisis, interestingly, it wasn't so much fiscal policy that did it. It was actually, it was actually shifting FAS 157 and basically saying, oh, hey, banks, you don't have to mark your losses to book. Right. You don't have to mark, mark, you know, mark these to market. So immediately in in March 2009, when the FASB changed FAS 157 and said, hey, banks do not have to mark their losses to market. Crisis went away. That's what did it. 
Why? Because because if you if you don't have to mark your losses to market, then the specter of widespread bank failures just goes away. And that's what happened in 2009. It wasn't the Fed saving things. So uh, so so it may be that the government steps in if that's where the blood is coming from. I hate to you know, say it like that. But basically, wherever it's bleeding, that's where they have to put the Band-Aid, right? During the pandemic, it was lost income. So they, you know, did a lot to, you know, PPP loans and, you know, and, and, and subsidies and, and, you know, other, other income-focused programs. During the pandemic, they needed to stem, you know, the, the bank failures. Uh, and most of that was an accounting change. Uh, but, you know, I think... We'll see it this time. I, it's it, it's hard to know where the um, you know where the stresses have come from. I suspect that they're you know that we may be bailing out pension funds if 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 you were to if you were to ask you know one area where I think we're going to have more government spending it's in pension bailouts. Yeah, John. John, just pick up on that point. Um, you mentioned it earlier, and we all, of course, been reading last week what's going on in the UK. Yep. Perhaps the UK, it's a more extreme version of what we might be looking at. But, um, you know, we fortified the banking system um, in, in the wake of the great financial crisis. So all the regulation had them increase their capital ratios and whatnot. And, you know, history doesn't repeat it rhymes. And you mentioned earlier, and you're bringing it up again, pension, pension funds. And, yeah. um, you know, um, thinking about the necessity of, and I think it's where KFAB was going earlier, that the fiscal levers have to get pulled, whether it's bailing out um, pension funds, or you see in you know many in, in many European countries, even a couple of states here in the United States, you know subsidies being promulgated to help offset higher uh, energy costs. And so, uh, if you have going back to KFAB's question about stoking the, the the flames of inflation, if you have the Fed, you know, really not following through on the QT, kind of like stuck. And then you have fiscal dominance emerging, which mm-hmm. is a leading question here. How does that not get us sustainably higher inflation looking at going forward? Yeah. So, so uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's fascinating. You know, Section 2A of the Federal Reserve Act requires the Fed to maintain the long-run growth of the monetary aggregates in line with the capacity of the economy to produce goods and services, right? Which basically says that, that what the Fed should be doing is, is, is staying in a reasonably, um, you know, limited range of base money to GDP. And that's certainly not the case. I mean, it's wildly violated that. Uh, and so, you know, so we do have, unfortunately, a situation where, you know, um, government debt has, has expanded to, um, you know, to, to well over 100% of GDP. Uh, and so, you know, so part of what we will get is, um, you know, inflationary consequences. And we'll get more to the extent that uh, the government, you know, funds its liabilities in shorter term instruments that, you know, can be, um, you know, that, 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 that can be rolled over at higher interest rates. It's part of the reason why the Fed, you know, likes to hold longer term you know, 
bonds and why why the uh, you know the treasury while it's been able to fund its deficits with long term instruments uh, has preferred those because you lock someone in at a very low long term rate of return if inflation goes up the rate of return doesn't re rate at least to maturity but inflation eats away the real value of that so you know that's part of why pensions are also likely in trouble because they own a lot of long-term stuff that they bought uh, because they believed the idea that uh, that in order to get higher return, you have to take more risk regardless of how an asset is priced. And it's that regardless of how an asset is, is priced that's really going to come back to bite people. That said, um, you know, what, you know, the, the, the way that, um, that, you know, I, I don't disagree that, that, uh, you know, that ultimately, um, you know, inflation is, a, is, is not just a monetary f- phenomenon, but also a fiscal one. Uh, people talk about, you know, the, the, you know, monetary policy being independent. Well, it can't be. Because how do you create money? The Federal Reserve goes and it buys treasury securities, government liabilities, and creates base money a different government liability. So all the Fed does is determine the mix of government liabilities. It's fiscal policy that determines the quantity of government liabilities. So, so you know, the, the, this idea that monetary policy and fiscal policy can ever be independent is, is, is ludicrous. It's not, even, uh, it's not even good arithmetic, right? Because the Fed determines the mix, fiscal policy determines the amount. Um, the mix is important, as we've seen, because you load people's balance sheets up with too much zero interest cash and you push them out on the risk curve and you create all kinds of financial market distortions. It actually hasn't done much to improve economic growth over what you could have anticipated by using purely non-monetary variables. Right. So in other words, if you take non-monetary information and you say, all right, what would you know, what would we project for GDP growth and employment and that sort of thing? And then you say, all right, well, let me expand my information set and add monetary variables. You don't do any better. And that's a way of saying that that all of this monetary distortion really hasn't had much predictable effect on real output growth or employment. But you do the same thing for the financial markets. Oh, yeah, that, that, the, the monetary stuff matters. And so, so my, my view is that, um, you know, we do have a, a very deficit-prone government right now. Uh, and that is going to be kind of a political challenge. Uh, so, so, so you're absolutely right there. Uh, and unless we get that challenge uh, figured out in a way that, uh, you know, th- that's reasonably, you know, acceptable to, uh, you know, to, to people, we're, you know, we'll pay for that through inflation. Thanks, John. Uh, let's just reset the room here, take time out for 30 seconds. Um, we're speaking with John Hussman, who I think everyone in the room knows really requires a little introduction. He's been in the vanguard of, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say some of the more bearish uh, forecasters out there. Um, 
have you know, and, and so it's particularly time that we have him in the room. And and I think we'll come back later, John, and talk a little bit more about what you learned when you went through your really tough times. Because you know, when, when I when I announced of having John Husker in the room, it's like, oh, that guy, he's always there. Well, he's also one of the brightest guys I know. And, and I always like to say that sometimes the market makes you look dumber than you really are, and sometimes it makes you look smarter than you really are. You realize you, you realize that I was a leveraged bull in in, in, I know, in much I know. of the early '90s, and and also. You know, I uh, t- took off most of our hedges after you know uh, the uh, the tech decline, and sure. you know, uh, yeah. yeah so, 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 yeah. yeah I mean, look, look. I mean, we'll the, get uh, back there. I, I know we'll, you're you're on the road to redemption, but before we go any further, I would yeah. just like to um, remind everyone and point out to everyone in the room, uh, we will be restarting again our uh, charitable endeavors in the coming weeks. Uh, earlier in the year, we raised uh, almost a quarter of a million dollars for World Central Kitchen. And I asked John uh, in advance of um, his appearance because he's doing this, you know, just he's a good guy and wants to share his insights. Um, if there was a charitable uh, cause that he might uh, want us to direct our energies towards. Um, and he responded that he, he thought that it'd be best that if people reached in their pockets and did something on a local level in their own communities, be it for food pantries or hospices. So um, I've gone easy on you guys the last few months. We haven't uh, passed the hat for World Central Kitchen. And if one is uh, so inclined, if one thinks they've gotten value from John's remarks here today, please give generously to your local uh, food pantry or hospice. Um, so um, I, I think that's one thing, John, I think I mentioned to you, it's the community we have here, people really want to get back and, and, and we appreciate your insights. And, um, you know, we, we, we don't do this for any, any monetary gain. And, and I think uh, people should pay for it. And you've been really generous with your philanthropic efforts. So I, I salute you for that. Um, John, um, I couldn't help but think when answering some of the questions, and KFL will come to you back in a second with another question. What is it? And I know in the past you've been there have been times where you've been sympathetic to gold, gold stocks. Yeah. And I, we'll keep this at a high level. I don't want to get granular because I know you run funds, so sure. we're not going to get at a granular level. But as a, as a, as a, as I listen to you talk about how you know they're not really going to go very far on the QT, they're not going to do the full Monty. Maybe they're sustainably higher inflation in our future. Um, what does that leave you thinking about gold and gold stocks, John? Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not un, unsympathetic toward gold stocks now, but uh, I will say I, I will say this uh, that that the way that um, one should invest in any particular, you know, class of securities uh, should not be based on uh, sort of sort of a reflex model in 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 your head. It should be based on what you observe in the world and what's testable over time. Uh, and so, you know, it, what's what's interesting about that is that inflation is a much less effective um, classifier for gold stocks than, it, than our uh, treasury bonds. Um, and it, it, in particular, one of the things that you will find is that all of the total return in gold stocks historically has been during periods where the 10-year treasury yield has been, say, below its level six months earlier. Basically, just downward pressure on treasuries has gotten you at least in the right area. 
uh, for gold. And the reason is because uh, otherwise you have this upward pressure on, you know, uh, on uh, the dollar, which is kind of what we've seen in recent months, which is why people kind of are abandoning gold here. And if you saw this, you know, I think it was either in the Wall Street Journal or, or Barron's, you know, the idea that gold has lost its luster as an inflation hedge, uh, which is which is sort of an unfortunate timing. Because if you look at the valuations of gold, and you can look at them, you know, gold stocks, a number of different ways. One is, you know, I mean, it's it's clearly useful for anything, you know, to, to look at a stock uh, relative to its, you know, own historical price revenue ratio. You'll get you'll get some information from that. Uh, for gold, uh, if you take the ratio of, um, you know, the XAU to the gold price, you've got uh, something like a P, you know, a price to fundamental ratio. And when that gets quite depressed uh, or when the gold to XAU ratio, flip it around, you know, gets gets quite high, particularly when spikes, uh, that can be a time where you want to sort of wake up and pay attention. And that's spiked uh, certainly uh, in recent in recent months. Um, then also, you know, a few other things that tend to be favorable for gold, um, inflation, you know, being higher than it was six months ago, because, you know, if you've got if you've got interest rates behaving well and inflation behaving badly. What is that? That's real interest rates, you know, getting pressed lower. Right. You know, nominal interest rates coming down, inflation still strong. So you've got downward pressure on real interest rates. That's also a very good situation for gold. Um, also, the ISM, once that rolls over below 50, haven't quite gotten there. That's good for gold. So in my view, there are lots of things that are kind of lining up for gold to do quite well particularly because the valuations are good and some of the pressures are turning, but not quite enough to set it on fire. I think once, once you see bond yields roll over, you know, say, you know, below their level of six months earlier and you see the economy head down, you will see gold light up more. Um, and so, so it's certainly not something that, that I, you know, that I'm avoiding even here. It's just a smaller position than I would normally have in a situation where you have, you know, kind of those drivers. But again, it's not just inflation that drives gold. And and I think one of the things that people have been um, frustrated by is we have such high inflation and gold is acting like garbage uh, and gold stocks have been acting like garbage. And the reason is we've had this upward pressure on real interest rates. Right. Uh, and so upward pressure on the 100%, 100%. dollar. 100%. Uh, we've got a couple of smart cookies in the room. Um, Michael Howell, who perhaps you've not had the pleasure of meeting before um, out of hey, London. Michael. And uh, so, so Michael Howell, John, uh, have at it, Michael. Good to see you. What's on your mind, Michael? Hi. Um, I much enjoyed listening to, to John. I, I, I pretty much agree, I think, with, uh, with most of what he said. So I, I suppose that puts me in the, in the sort of mega bearish camp as well. But, um, <laughs> I don't, I I, say, you know, here's, let me just, let me just jump in. 
I, it, it, what, what, whatever tires that I blew during QE, I'm actually ahead of the market with less risk since 2019. So, so even though the market's still up by then, so I'm not, I, I I'm, I'm not inflexible, you know, I, although I'm, I, I'm ha- I, I, I do guessing. have, I do have that um, reputation. Yeah. Sorry. But oh, hold on, Michael, that... Mike, Michael, I have to interrupt you. Michael, I interrupt you. Hey, John, John, yeah. you need a do over. Um, could I suggest you maybe get some of those crypto blue laser eyes, maybe to be a little bit more raw? You gotta yeah. do something you'll, with that avatar, dude. Yeah, you'll see me with laser eyes when. <laughs> <laughs> All right, <laughs> Mr. Hal. Sorry about that. Go for it, Michael. Sorry. I think um, uh, let let me add let me add a couple of things, a couple of thoughts. I mean, one is that um, if you look at today's ISM. Yep. Uh, I think the internals look really bad in that. Yes, and, they do. New orders you know, are horrible. The new orders have collapsed. Inventory's gone up. If you look at that spread, it's telling you that there's a there's a big recession coming. Now the point is that the way that we look at things, and you know, going back to my uh, my early days in investment banking, the one thing that the traders always said is there is no unrelated event in these markets. And mm-hmm. if you look at what's happening in the fixed income markets. You look at what's happening in the Forex markets, the level of volatility in both is telling you that something bad is about to take place in equities if it hasn't already happened. And if you look at how equity vol is being priced, it's being priced in line with um, fixed income or, um, or currency vol, but it's not at a premium to it. And what no. you should see in a recession is a big premium on equity vol because you actually get economic volatility thrown in on top. And that's not yet being priced. So in other words, the warranted level of the VIX should be in the low 30s right now, given what the other markets are doing. But you should be adding a 10 or 15 point premium to the VIX because of upcoming economic dislocations. And the ISM is pretty much telling you that. So in other words, this is the worst phase of the bear market we're about to go in. Don't uh, worry about these vicious rallies like today. That always happens in a bear phase. The other thing, the other observation is, which is a FedEx observation, I looked at the numbers more closely today and looking at how FedEx has been performing, it's pretty much telling us that world trade growth has another 30% dip probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there may be something unusual in the FedEx numbers, but actually some of the other shipping companies, Triton, for example, and uh, Deutsche Post and the other, uh, you know, the other uh, parallel stocks are performing pretty similarly. So it looks as if there's something, there is something bad emerging out there. How do we get out of this? If well, you back at, well, let, let me just give you give you my my thoughts. Sure. If you if you look back at the last week, the one thing that came through, I think, was the alacrity with which the Bank of England came in to support the markets. Now, the Bank of England has sort of had this uh, uh, this tough face for some months now, but actually it moved. It changed very quickly. It wants mm-hmm. to preserve financial stability. My conclusion is that we're not far away generally from from widespread yield curve control. And I think that is the thing that everyone's going to start thinking about. That won't be too bad for stocks in the medium term. Uh, We've got to go through some pain first. Mm. But when the system breaks and the Fed will break something at this rate, it's, you know, it's making a big error, I think. It's tightening into a recession. When something breaks, they're going to move to yield curve control. Now, I checked actually today, which something surprised me. If you look back at the records of the FOMC or their statements, both Yellen, when she was the chair, and Lael Brainard, both are big advocates of yield curve control. Mm. Now, actually, I didn't realize that actually until I looked at it today, but it comes through. So that may be a path 
that central banks are willing to take? And that's really a question for John. Do you think that's viable? What does it mean? So, so, so the, the great question. And there, are, there, I think there are two pieces. One is the now and one is one is one is the post break. Right. Um, I think the now, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, volatility being lower than than it seems like it should, you know, in comparison to, you know, other markets. Uh, I do think you have that, you know, what I what I talked about is is recency bias. You know, people are so convinced that, well, you buy the dip. If if the market's down this much, then you've got to buy the dip. And and they're really not um at least at least uh in in sort of the 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 popular media taking into account the extremes that we got to in valuations. You know, it, it, prior to about, um, you know, about June uh, value, you know, the decline that we had in the market only had brought the S&P to levels that were never seen in history prior to August 2020. In other words, we were beyond 1929. We were beyond 2000, even in June of this year. Yeah, we've come down a little further now but not not a dramatic extent. So so, you know, so you look at two things in combination, you know, in one, you can see sentiment, what people are saying, that's 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 quite bearish. But if you look at their actual positioning and you look at the, you know, market cap of equities relative to just about anything, uh, it's still extremely elevated. And so so I do believe that that yeah, there's there's another shoe to drop. As I you know, as I mentioned before, these things don't unwind in one fell swoop. So you're exactly right that you know rallies that like we had today, and really rallies that we had, uh, for example, from the June low for more than a month. Um, you know, following that, uh, are things that that investors have to take as part and parcel of the longer term. You know, unwind. Uh, once we get to a place where the Fed can actually say, uh, you know, my my view on, by the way, what the Fed is doing, you know, I've I've been, you know, I, I, my my dissertation advisors were John Taylor of the Taylor Rule, uh, Tom Sargent, who, um, you know, was was basically, uh, you know, the primary mover on rational expectations. And Ron McKinnon, who uh, who, you know, basically basically developed this concept of financial repression and begged the Japanese uh, central bank not to go down the road that they did. And they've had 30 years of nothing for it. Uh, and Bernanke was on pretty much the other side of, of, of Ron uh, on that and basically got a hold of the Federal Reserve and has done just horror. Um, you know, my view is, has always been that, uh, that it's really this quantitative easing business that's most distortionary. Uh, and I would just like, you know, interest rate policy to look reasonably systematic. I think it does look at least reasonably systematic at this point. So I'm not, you know, I, I you know, I'm not, uh, you know, jumping up and down for for vastly higher interest rates either. Uh, that said, I do think quantitative easing and the size of the balance sheet is a huge mistake. Um, that said, when we get to a point of breaking, 
they're used to expanding their balance sheet. Uh, I think they'll have more difficulty doing it. And so in order to control the yield curve, they'll have to do something like they did after World War II, which is they have to buy bonds in order to hold the yield curve, you know, down and um, or during, you know, and, and so, you know, if fiscal deficits become re- relatively large, uh, you know, eventually that 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 throws the Federal Reserve that that throws the central bank off of that yield curve control. And so and so the Fed has done yield curve control before. Uh, and it ultimately had to abandon it because it was being forced to buy too many bonds. Uh, I think the Fed has a greater tolerance for that now, but I still think that um, you know longer term sort of sort of persistent yield curve control will become a problem given the size of their balance sheet already. Uh, they could definitely try. I think you're. I, I think you're exactly right. They're going to try. They're going to try what their what their dogma says you know, uh, will, will, will work in their head. Uh, and I think Brainerd and Yellen have been exactly on that path of wanting to buy, you know, wanting to buy more assets. So, so I don't think that's, um, you know, I, I don't think that's unreasonable as a first stop. I, I, I question sustainability, but I don't think it's unreasonable as a first stop. Thanks for that uh, question, Michael. Uh, I'd like to give the next question to uh, our good friend of the room, Tom Thornton. Uh, Tommy, please unmute yourself. Do you have a question for John? Hey, Tommy. Hey, John. Hey, how are you? Uh, John, uh, this is really a treat um, to have a conversation and hear you in long form. And uh, I've been a reader of your work for a long, long time. I actually just have one question. And I asked the same question to Fred Hickey. Who is who runs oh, yeah. the high? Who runs the high tech strategist? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fred Fred tends to lean bearish. I uh, I tend to have a bearish bias, uh, but I also, you know, trying to be more stock and bond world agnostic as far as direction. Uh, the question I have is, what would it take for you to become bullish on the markets? Oh, super easy, super easy, okay. super easy. Yeah, that's a big where. Yeah, uh, material retreat. So what? What I've always told people, you know, what 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 has always got us bullish is a material retreat in valuations that's coupled with an improvement in market internals. Now, uh, you know, there there was there was a um, you know my my hiccup during this you know this particular cycle. Uh, makes, you know, made this particular cycle particularly problematic because we were having, you know, uh, economic contraction at a faster rate than any time during the Great Depression. And so uh, so I, I, I essentially hit the stop button and said, you know, I, the, everything that we're doing is based on post-war data and we need to stress, the, stress test this. Um, but that said, what we... Will do in the future is exactly what um, you know. What, what I've you know told uh, you know our readers that that we will do and we have done in the past and it's the same thing we did after the ninety bear market after the you know two thousand two thousand two bear market um, you know and so forth uh, you know in early two thousand three uh, which is which is that we need a material retreat uh, we've had something of that. 
So even now, if our measures of market internals were to improve, even though I think stocks are priced in a way that that will likely produce, you know, a, a long, interesting trip to nowhere over the next decade, um, you know, an improvement in market internals would basically say, look, they've got the bit in their teeth again. I don't care why. They don't care why. They do. And we can't lean heavily against that. So that in itself would pull us to a neutral or modestly constructive position, albeit at this level, uh, with a lot of safety nets. The lower valuations go, the fewer safety nets we need when market internals improve. So, so again, our, you know, we, we look at um, uniformity across a, a whole range of, of measures. Um, you know, it's, it's more of a signal extraction, so I can't really map it into uh, popular measures. But, uh, but if, if, if people follow things like, um, you know, breadth, you know, advanced decline, um, leadership, new highs, new lows, uh, participation, you know, the percentage of stocks trading above, you know, various moving averages, um, you know, industry participation, um, you know, uniformity across, you know, across lots of different sectors, uh, you know, the more uniformity you see in the market, uh, the more you can infer that people have the bit in their teeth. And so, and so the, the answer is actually pretty straightforward. Uh, and it goes back to what I said at the beginning. The best situation for the market is when you have an adequate risk premium that's being pressed lower. That means a retreat in valuations coupled with you know, market internals improving uh, or something along those lines. In contrast, the worst situation for investors is when you have inadequate risk premia that are being pressed higher. And that's kind of where we are at right now. So, um, you know, so there, there are combinations thereof, right? So right now, if improve, internals improve, we've got inad inadequate risk premia, but they're also being <laughs> pressed lower, right? So, it's, so you know, you kind of need an intermediate position for that. But, uh, you know, what, what we do isn't... isn't um, complicated to describe it's you know obviously anyone who reads my stuff knows that i test everything and i test it as you know using as much data as i can going back and that's you know kind of a really exhaustive part of what we do uh but conceptually um and and investors won't do too badly to remember this that you know the the best situation you can have is is when risk premium are adequate and when they're being pressed lower and the worst situation you want to avoid is when you've got a crummy risk premium that's being pressed higher. That's Brilliant. That, Perfect. That, that, thanks for that question, Tommy. Uh, John, I'm going to throw another question at you, and then Kayfabe, uh, you please weigh in. John, um, does it bother you, it certainly bothers me, that one of the particular problems is that this cycle's gone on for so long yep. without any appreciable downturn. And actually, Kayfabe, um, if you wouldn't mind, because I, I I'm just going to channel my inner KFA, but I think you do a better job <laughs> than me being you. KFA, could you could you throw at John your 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 analogy you had the other day about the about the, about the forest fires? That, that was a great one. Yeah. Um, so I, I use an analogy. It's you know kind of a complex systems analogy, which is um, you know the amount of dry tinder on the floor bed and sure. and you know fire management 
um, forest management and how with business cycles we usually have. So we've had a 13 year period of effectively dry tender because 2020 was kind sure. of a weird recession. You didn't really get the bankruptcies because of the fiscal support Absolutely. Um, and with zero rates. So not only that, you normally the fire has the break lines. And uh, that, that to me is the fact that you don't really get uniformity in, in global business cycles all that often. Meaning that in 08 and 09, you had China just slow down from like 11 to 8% and India just slowed down. A lot of the bricks were just, you know, barely in recession or mild recessions. So you kind of have this normal break lines in the forests um and what we what, what the pandemic did is because of lockdowns and emerging is it's almost like we had this reboot of global business cycles everyone kind of went back into this uh, a synchronized business cycle and we haven't had a synchronized downturn like it looks like we're in the cusp of since 81 82 mm-hmm. and and the idea of having <clears throat> a combination of this much dry tinder on the forest bed and those normal breaks aren't there because of the synchronicity of the business cycle creates a real potential for nonlinear risk um, in, of, of economic risk. And obviously, it was, you guys were talking about relative to how that then manifests in market risk and volatility. Um, so I think that that's basically what George was referencing. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's it, it's interesting when, when you talk about um you know, these 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 kinds of washouts, um, you know, the, there's there's an additional problem to having a very extended, um, you know, market cycle and business cycle is that what it what it also did is it really amplified the belief among investors that valuations are just garbage that you don't have to worry about valuations. And you see this in, you know, the 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 embrace of of passive, uh, you know, it is, it's actually something that if you look at, um, you know, Graham and Dodd uh, back in 1932, uh, you know, Graham, you know, they, they asked, you know, why, why was it that, that investors, um, you know, sort of, sort of abandoned valuations and, Part of it was that, you know, the records of the past were proving unreliable, that the rewards of the future proved too alluring. But there was also this other, uh, you know, th- this other belief that if you curated, you know, stock prices over a long period of time, that they had gone inexorably higher. And what Graham said is, you know, the, these beliefs seem very innocuous, but what they had the effect of doing was to remove price as a consideration for investment. Uh, and and so, so what we've had with this very, very extended business cycle is a period where people have essentially concluded that valuation doesn't matter, that you can be passive all the time. You know, and, and you know, I mean, we all know the, the, the basic arithmetic to this. You know, if you, you know, it, 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 what, what the Fed did is, you know, if, if you create 36% of GDP as, uh, as cash and people don't want to hold 10% of their portfolio, you know, more than 10% of their portfolio in cash, they need to drive other assets up. So there's, you know, 360% of GDP, you know, so, and, and essentially that's, that, that's part of what the Fed did is this weird portfolio balance thing. Um, but, you know, but given that, um, you know, a lot of that, you know, a lot of that base money is now earning interest, um, you know, a lot of the speculative 
mentality of that has come come down. And so now we have valuations declining. And to your point, we also had, you know, a good more than a decade where money funneled into really sketchy investments. Uh, if you look at, for example, the share of debt that is now covenant light, meaning that if it goes belly up, well, too bad because the covenants that you used to rely on are no longer there. Um, I do think that we'll see more of, of those kinds of losses. And it's not clear to me that those non-systemic losses, corporate losses, for example, corporate bond losses, uh, are things that the Fed has any inclination to clean up. Financial institutions, sure. Uh, but, uh, but I think a lot of those individual losses will be, you know, uh, corporate securities and bad investments will be borne by the people who made the investments. Uh, and I think where uh, government will get involved uh, in trying to, um, you know, in trying to manage the forest fire, to use your analogy, uh, will be in the pension space where where there are dependents uh, that otherwise will be left, you know, will, will be left sort of sort of uncovered. Uh, so. So, yeah, you know, we've had this enormous period of time where. Uh, the the tender's gotten really dry and, and you know, a lot of things have been built there, uh, not all that belong. And so, you know, so, so you know, there, there, you know, a lot of those will go up in flames. That's terrific. Thanks for that. Before we go to Rob uh, Isbitz, I, I got one question for you, John. Sure. Uh, trigger warning, trigger warning in, in effect. My grandfather <laughs> used to say, never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Say, hey, John. Yeah. What are you thinking about private equity and venture capital investing in this environment? Private equity and venture capital. So, you know, it's, so so PE has 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 long um, impressed me as 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 leverage that you don't actually see. You know, it's it's like you know, there's a there's a um, uh, a news paper clip that I that 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 I have a little picture of that says Ponzi refuses to reveal business secret. Right. Um, and so, you know, I've I, I've got I, I've got some concerns about, um, you know, especially, again, pensions and endowments uh, going into private equity, not realizing the amount of implicit leverage that's behind those deals, particularly given the valuations that we've seen. And so that brings us to uh, venture capital, which is kind of the same thing. Venture capital is, I mean, it, it's its certainly an essential part of the economy, right? It's something that, um, you know, especially startup businesses, you know, that, that have really good ideas, you know, I mean, all this comes out of venture capital. So you can't, you can't tar and feather it. But at the same time, you can certainly tar and feather the standards. And if you see some of the sort of more spacky type of, uh, you know, issuances that we've had over the last year, again, it looks a lot like, uh, you know, all of this, you know, relentless speculation of people trying to get out of the damn zero interest money and taking any asset that promises them a positive return. 
you know, the, and, and let me go through this, this math because I, it, it, it makes me crazy when people say, oh, this money's going into stocks or money's coming out of stocks or money's going into bonds or money's coming out of bonds. Look, when the Fed buys a treasury security, it pays for that with base money, currency and bank reserves, pretty much bank reserves, right? Those bank reserves become somebody's account. They want to move that into stocks. Great. They buy stocks. What happens to the base money? Goes into the seller's account. Somebody's got to keep on holding it. Oh, the bank holds the base money in its account. So somebody's got a deposit and they just brought in base money. And there you go. Now the bank makes a loan. Well, now the deposit is backed by the new loan and the base money goes to the bank of the guy who borrowed the money. The base money is still there, all right? It doesn't matter what happens in terms of transactions in the economy. Somebody's got to hold this stuff. And so what happened over the last decade when the Fed created this much zero interest base money is people lost their minds. They needed to earn something, the Tina effect. You know, there is no alternative. I, you know, my view is that that's actually what's been behind cryptocurrencies and, and meme stocks, everything, because people have had this voracious need to get out of zero. And as zero has ended, um, a lot of that speculation is folding. So uh, so my my view is that we're going to have some private equity disasters and, you know, we've already had some SPAC disasters. Uh, and I think that's going to continue as long as uh, people have that speculative bit that's dropped out of their teeth. Terrific. Hey, Rob, uh, good to see you. You have a question for John? Rob? Yeah. Yes, thank you. And I'll also add, uh, George, based on that question that you uh, just asked or the, the comment you made about uh, don't ask a question that you don't know the answer to. <laughs> Uh, I think we all know that that uh, is never more important than when you are making a marriage proposal. Uh, so I, uh, I've, I've, I've told that to uh, to a few people over the years. Uh, John. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, nice to talk to you. Uh, same, same here. Uh, you know, longtime fan. I've uh, been following your work, not for years, but for decades. Oh, thank you. Um, Yep. And, um, and, and look, there are many times where you, uh, I would read your stuff and say, you know what? No, I'm not crazy. Okay. He's showing all the evidence. <laughs> it's just that the market hasn't necessarily caught up. Um, and eventually it does. And sometimes it takes a while. So, uh, and by the way, for anybody that is not familiar, I was just checking before I, I got on with you here, uh, HSGFX, John's, uh, uh, I guess, flagship fund, Husband's Strategic uh, Growth, which is a staple, uh, in, in my portfolios years ago before I was kind of running my own money. Um, uh, all you've done uh, this year is beaten the S&P 500 by over 35%. So there's an answer to a trivia question for anybody in the crowd. And uh, also, you know, I like to look at how people have done since the pandemic peak. That's February 19th of 2020 when the news first kind of hit. Um, and you are over the S&P 35% to 10% in 31 months. So I think there's something to be said for kind of playing defense as well as offense. Now, my question to you, and, and I'm just going to put out a, a, just a couple things quickly, and you please speak on whatever subsegment of this you like. The first is um, 
to some of us, a little bit frustrating that the VIX has not really broken out above 35. It's been range bound between, I'd say, about 19 and 35. Pretty big darn range. Sure. But, uh, but um, you know, any, any thoughts on that? And then the second thing, think of it this way. There's four points in time in the history of, let's call it, modern markets, okay? There's dot-com era. There's, there's global financial crisis. There's 1987. And there's now anything you would like to say that kind of goes to the compare and contrast idea. I would really love to hear. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rob. Uh, so, so um, in terms of, you know, the, the, this, this kind of VIX breakout that I think, you know, a lot of people are, are sort of looking at this decline and saying, well, what's going on? Um, you know, again, th th this this recency bias that people have that, well, you know, you got to get your shopping list out because, you know, the market's down X percent. Um, I think that that particular bias is 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 really not um, very considerate of where we've been in terms of valuations. And, you know, if, if you look at uh, my latest market comment, you kind of get a sense of, you know, the, 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 the decline that we've had has brought us back to 2000 uh, level valuations, uh, uh, at least on, you know, on, on measures that that are better correlated with subsequent returns than anything else we've tested over time. So, you know, so what what happened earlier this year is we got so far beyond, um, you know, historic uh, market peaks that the decline that we've had has simply taken us to, you know, to where we were in 2000. Now, that said, uh, a lot of that 2000 valuation was because of, you know, uh, glamour tech stocks. And those dropped, um, as expected, about 83 percent. Uh, you know, during the 2000-2002 bear market, whereas the S&P dropped by only about half. Uh, but, you know, prior to 2020, uh, that drop uh, it, during the tech bubble was actually, you know, the, the, the 2000 bottom was actually the highest valuation that we'd ever seen at a market bottom prior again to, you know, to, to 2020's low. Uh, so, you know, so, so it was no great value. Now, 2009 was, was, was uh, actually uh, moderately below uh, historical norms. So we, we were actually priced for, you know, pretty good long-term returns by the 2000 low. And, you know, people forget that the market lost value between you know, between those two points, um, be, you know, between the, you know, 2002 low and the 2009 low. That said, um, you know, what's, what, what we have here now is this very long period where people just have a recency bias that every bottom, you know, every sell-off gets to be bought and deserves to be bought. And so, so um, even though sentiment has been rather negative. You haven't really seen that show up in anything that you would call a capitulation. Now, uh, you, you asked about those other tops. If you look at, uh, for example, the 1987 top, what happened was that you had this sort of ragged decline off the top. Um, 
and then you know you had you had sort of sort of these periodic rallies but the decline really didn't get going until the market was already down um you know about 14% off its peak which was which was a good amount from that particular valuation uh so so what can often happen is you establish this line of perceived support and then when you break that perceived support in a material way people who have been hanging on the fence you know saying well oh, it'll come back it'll it, you know we've got the bottom see look it's coming back already like today you know look it's coming back together see i'm a genius i bought i got my shopping list out like they told me you know uh so so you see these bounces and they convince people that things are okay it's it's when you break that support that all of a sudden that vix goes from 30 to 47 right you know it's, it's so it's so it's that break of support and it's been longer coming this time because people have been so taught that every dip is a v bottom right uh they're starting to lose that and you can see it in sort of the heaviness of market action uh they tried to get a v bottom off of that june low and then we failed down to down to fresh lows a, a few days ago um right. we've recovered that they're 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 going to try and defend that i suspect uh, i don't know for how long it might be a few days it might be a week it might be a few weeks it's hard to say um and we have to monitor internals meantime because of internal shift then we just have to sit back and say all right they got the bit in their teeth let's watch this for a while um but right now, given where the where inflation is at, given some of the developing uh, strains in the global financial system, my my impression is that that defending that um, you know that that sort of support level is going to be difficult. And if that support level breaks, uh, that's when that's when you get a lot of people. Simul simultaneously saying, let me get out. And the way equilibrium works is fairly straightforward. Suppose that you have two types of investors, right? Suppose you have speculators and value investors. Well, as speculators get speculative, they bid prices up and they start, they, they try and buy stock. Who are they buying from? Well, people who are inclined to sell on higher prices, the value guys. Right. So and guys, I'm, I'm a Chicago boy, so everyone's guys. Uh, but, you know, the value investors, um, you know, as as prices go up, um, you know, value investors tend to be the supply and speculators tend to be the demand. And that can continue and continue and continue for a while. But at some point, you know, the speculators are dominant. And now the question is, if the speculators finally break and they're inclined to sell, the question is to whom? Well, they got to sell to the value investors. And value investors may not be inclined at all to buy stocks anywhere near those levels. And that's what creates these lines down, these abrupt drops in price, because every seller has to find a buyer. Money doesn't go out of the market, it, goes, it just changes hands. Stocks don't vanish when someone sells them. Somebody has to buy them. And so when, when speculators get inclined to sell in mass, like they did in 87, right? Like they did at our Lehman moment, right? In 2008, like they did twice. And, you know, once in uh, 
you know, uh, uh, third quarter of uh, 2001. And then again uh, in, um, you know, in sort of the second, third quarter of 2002, when speculators are trying to get out, they have to find someone on the other side. And if the other person on the other side is, is risk averse and value oriented, you can have, you know, these really big lines down. And so, you know, so, so my sense is that, that thinking about that, you know, the market dynamics from the standpoint of equilibrium, that every seller has to find a buyer. It's easy right now because people have that recency bias and things aren't so bad and they look uh, oversold and, you know, you can get bounces off of that and you can get really fast bounces if short sellers get squeezed and that sort of thing. But it's, you know, it's, it's this broader, um, you know, it's this broader break of support that can lead things down in a hurry. And, and, and we're trading heavy, but I, I, I don't, I try not to make short-term forecasts. So, um, so, so we, 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 we're trying to be super two-sided about it uh, tactically, but uh, you know, uh, a crash wouldn't be a bad thing and a massive rally would be okay. So John, yes, John, 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 thanks for that. Uh, Ralph, if you don't mind, I'd like to get a couple more questions in here from Gnostic and Marathon. John has been so generous with his time. We're going on an hour and 40 minutes now. I thought this was Oh, my. Yeah, so John, a couple more and then and then you're dismissed. We may have a food <laughs> fight amongst ourselves. But if I heard you correctly, you know, play on words, you know, so so you're saying there's a chance. So no, to, no, to paraphrase John, John Husband. So you're saying there is not a chance. That's basically what you're saying. Okay. So, 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 so let's, let's do Gnostic and Marathon. And then, John, we're going to send you on your way. Gnostic, my friend, the floor is yours. Please unmute Okay. Uh, thank you, John. Very nice to hear from you. I've heard of you by reputation. And speaking with you is certainly... Don't believe anything they say. No. Oh, oh hey, I, I deal with liability and defamation all the time. <laughs> um. Again, you know, George, thank you for the space. John, thank you for your time. Of course. Uh, I don't know if this falls into your bellywick because I don't know enough about your work, but two items here that I thought, considering we're, we're talking about buyers and sellers and, and the volume of them, how much of the market do you think is computer logarithmic trading? Uh, question number one, mm -hmm. and is that does that significantly impact the market? the market movements uh, that you've been talking about. And second question is foreign money coming into the markets. Uh, mm -hmm. I know European money wants to run away. I know no Asian money wanted to run away. Mm -hmm. My suspicion is they come into the market and they buy at any price just to get it out of their currency yep. uh, into American currency. And how much of that is the market buyers that are coming in that we're seeing that just makes all my analysis seem to be basically worthless. And I'm just, take me to cash and let me sit down until I figure out what's going, which is why I appreciate George's space and your time. Thank you. Sure. Uh, so, so, uh, so two things. So algorithmic trading, you know, obviously uh, is, is a huge impact, but I think mostly where it impacts is bid ask spreads, frankly. Uh, you know, I think the, the algorithms, um, you know, basically are, are trying to pick off um you know, very, 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 very small improvements in the bid ask spread, and do it as fast as possible. Uh, so, so they're 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 picking up lots of fraction. If you've if you've ever you know sort of sort of heard of these um, these schemes to you know take the rounding off of a penny 
uh, of, of transactions uh, that, that go through the banking system or that sort of thing. I don't know if that's, that's, that's something that, that, that ever happened in a material scale, but, uh, but uh, that's I used certainly... to do it. At, I used to do it and it did happen at scale. <laughs> well, that's, that, that, that's really what I think algos are doing, right? You know, I, I think they're trying to pick off uh, very, very slim margins uh, but I don't. Uh, but it's not. Uh, I, I'm not convinced that they move the market now. 87 was was a, a, a somewhat different form of algorithmic trading. In that, in that, what you know, I was at the on the Chicago Board of Trade at the time. What what was what was going on there was that uh, they were trying to baskets, uh, arbitrage baskets of stock against the futures. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people, you know, who blame portfolio insurance. But really what it was is, is, you know, people knew that stocks had run up in a hurry. And what happened in 1987 is not unlike what happened, what's happening right now. If you look at the a chart of the 10-year bond yield in 1987, what you see is that investors had to get their heads around rapidly rising rates in a very short period of time. And if you if you compare the charts of of 10 year bond yields in 87 to what they look like now, they look a lot the same because people are having to get their heads around um, yields, rising yields very quickly. Different levels of valuation, different levels of yield, but the same sort of adjustment. And so in 87, what happened was that, uh, you know, a lot of. uh, you know, institutions were trying to um, do what were essentially synthetic put options. They didn't want to actually buy the puts. They wanted to do this portfolio insurance that they didn't think had a time premium to it. Uh, but ultimately, what ended up happening was once support broke, uh, once again, everyone's trying to sell and there's no one there to buy. And so so these portfolio insurance, um, you know, algos were selling futures Right. So people were selling futures contracts and the futures got to a massive discount relative to the cash. And so people, um, you know, people were buying the cash. I'm sorry, buying the futures at a discount. And then those, you know, the algos would 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 be selling the the cash to try and arbitrage the difference, you know, the cash stocks. And so so basically you had these these what were blamed on algorithms, you know, accelerating the 1987 crash but really what was going on was essentially the same equilibrium that we always see people trying to get out and not being able to find a buyer and so you know so so yes algorithms are important in facilitating what people want to do but in the end it's the people who you know who who want to change their position or, or or manage their risk or adjust their risk in a hurry, that are really driving, you know those 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 big movements. So so that's that's kind of what my my, my impression is of of algorithms. And and the second part of your question was was, uh, you know, trying to get your head around uh, I think uh, foreign flows, and you know and again the for, you know the 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 equilibrium is the same. Every dollar that's out there has to be held as a dollar. Every share of stock that's been issued has to be held by someone. Every bond that's been issued has to be, you know, held by someone. Every, uh, you know, every loan that's been made is also somebody, some bank's asset. So, so all these securities 
um, you know, the, uh, different different parties will try and shift their positions, and obviously that that can you know affect uh, you know affect the prices. But you know these these flows also you know the the money going in is equal to the money you know coming out, and in the end, all those you know all those British pounds are still held by somebody. All the you know dollar reserves are still held by someone. Every share of stock is still by held, held by someone. So so um, so while there are there are these shifts, I think the more important question is at what price, and what's the pressure, and that goes way back to what we talked about at the beginning. If you've got prices that you know imply inadequate risk premia, and the pressure is to drive those risk premia up. You've got problems. And so, you know, the, the market structure affects, you know, how quickly that might happen. Algos will affect how quickly that will happen. Right. But in the end, the pricing, what matters as investors really comes back down to what's the valuation and what's the market pressure. That's kind of why, you know, sort of the fundamental building blocks of our own discipline are valuations and market action. Nostic, please unmute yourself. Yep. Yep. Okay. The, the, I understand what you're saying, but what happens when the dynamics of the risk acceptance are lowered uh, for the risk val risk factors in another country? What happens when somebody's willing to accept a bigger risk in this country than over there? Yeah. And I, I bring up I bring this up only to add another little piece that I'd still love to get my finger on. Uh, there's a, an anecdotal note going around that at one point um, several years ago, uh, this is before the market crash in, in uh, 2008, 2007, 2008, and one of the PhD researchers in the Fed uh, came over to, who was it at that time? Uh, not Powell, not Bernanke, before, before Bernanke. Mm -hmm. uh, my memory is blanking. And, and basically said to him that, you know, it looks like, sorry, what? Oh, was Greenspan. It? Greenspan, Sorry. Yes. Went up to Greenspan and, and said to Greenspan, it, it looks like our calculations of, of money stock are wrong. Uh, and, you know, presented some figures to him. And he said, that's wrong. Uh, go back and do it again. He went back, did it again, came back to the to a meeting again and said, my God, you're brilliant. I don't know how you knew it was wrong, but you're right. It was too low. Hmm. And what happened is all of the uh, MBS uh, that have been done internationally, hmm. they came home to roost, hadn't been accounted for in money supply. And the money supply account was wrong, which set off a whole reflexive thing in the Fed. And again, I, I haven't seen stuff that actually balances this, but it sort of matches what came to be, is that all of a sudden so much money was in the system, the Fed hadn't accounted for it and distorted all of their numbers and all of their figures. Mm -hmm. And my concern is that if we have money coming in that's taking a different adjusted risk ratio uh, than everybody else is taking, then we have the same buildup happening again both in the currency and in uh, both markets and potentially in the bond market because yeah. it's even bigger. Yeah, I, I think so. So I think um, it's it's less likely that it's that it's an unobserved flow. But I but I but I hear the the crux of the uh, point being that when you get a very rapid adjustment in risk preferences, within any class of investors, whether it's speculators or whether it's, um, you know, uh, foreign investors or, or you know, uh, anyone who has um, sort of sort of not sticky 
hands when it comes to the securities they want to own, um, then in order to equilibrate the system, in order to match the seller to a buyer, you can you can require uh, very quick uh, adjustments in price. That's in fact exactly why the pound is now twelve ounces or thereabouts. Right. Thanks for that, Nastic. All right, Marathon, you're going to have last question for John. Uh, please unmute yourself, Marathon. Hey, really appreciate it, George. Thanks for letting me slip in a, a late uh, question in what's been a fantastic space. John, I've been a longtime admirer of yours, um, and I'm going to break ranks and ask you a question that I don't know what your answer is going to be to it. Um, <laughs> I, 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 haven't, I haven't known any of the questions, so that, if that helps. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you have an opinion on whether those of us and, you know, fully disclosure, I, I'm a resource industry investor okay. um, at energy and resources as a way to continue to be involved in a market that clearly has some major, more broader, more systemic, more valuation type of issues. Um, you know, we've got two different analogs. 2008 was resolved in a way that was very bad for resource stocks. Mm -hmm. 1999 was resolved in a way that was actually quite good, um, mm -hmm. more rotational. Yeah. Um, so how do you think that this cycle has the potential to play out? So that, that, that is actually that's actually a harder question for me, because, you know, one of the you know, even though, you know, my stock selection record uh, has has been, you know, phenomenal. Say what you will about my hedging during one of the phases of QE, uh, you know, the stock selection, you know, we've always been extremely good at valuing stocks. But one of the reasons why is because we're able to look at stocks or we're inclined to look at stocks as claims on very, very, very long term streams of cash flows that will be delivered over time. And we're good at discounting those and, um, you know, and, and, you know, adjusting for um, for all kinds of things. Um, the, the the challenge with energy stocks in particular resources um, you know, I, I've mentioned, you know, when we value, you know, pretty much any, you know, any equity, you know, we really try and think about, you know, the, the, the long term cash flows that will be delivered over time. If you look at some of these energy stocks, they're trading, you know, at, at literally price earnings multiples as well. You know, this of, of three and four. Um, so they're, you know, they're 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 heavily. Um, you know, priced based on relatively near term, you know, operating, you know, results, which is which is great when those operating results are fat, uh, but can become a problem if if they're not sustainable. Uh, so, you know, so for us, um, you know, we kind of have been essentially, you know, a, a little bit less than market weight. Uh, well, actually, you know, have varied them somewhat, you know, it, uh, when when you know oil prices really got crushed, we had we had uh, more of an exposure. We picked up more of an exposure. Uh, you know when when oil prices and you know other resource prices ran up, uh, we've kind of lightened up. But we're we're much more inclined to trade those stocks uh, almost more as trading vehicles that have certain fundamentals that drive them. If you think about you know what I what I was talking about with gold stocks, same sort of thing. You know when we see you know, downward pressure on interest rates, upward pressure on inflation, reasonable valuations, uh, softening economy. Then we know that historically precious metal stocks have done very well. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, 
you know, 2008, um, you know, the the uh, oil stocks did really well until you got uh, the financial crisis driving real interest rates up sharply, really quick. Uh, and so so I think probably the the best takeaway that I could offer on um, energy stocks is is keep your eye on the pressure on real interest rates, uh, because that has a lot of effect on uh, commodities that are priced globally, uh, because, you know, if 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 there's upward dollar pressure, uh, those, you know, those those tend to sink uh, this. This rally that we've had in energy has gone has bucked that a little bit because of the supply chain issues. Uh, but but, um, you know, it, it, you really do want to keep your eye on, you know, real interest rate pressures uh, with with anything resource related. Really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thanks. Sure. With that, I think, John, this has been just extraordinary. This has gone far longer than I think we both thought it would. But yeah. Yeah. But, but but no one had a gun at your head, so I, I kind of sense you've been having a good time. So. I have, I have. So, Thank so, you for. Yeah. I, I mean, great questions. You know, I I don't do very many of these, uh, frankly, and so uh, so it's so it's nice to talk to so many you know it, you know individuals with different sort of perspectives on it. So I so I really do yeah, appreciate. And, it. and also, no, as you can tell, you got a lot of friends out there, and uh, you know, Thank some you. people some people call this the bear room. It's not really. <laughs> I, like, I like it to think of it as a realist room. Everyone yeah. says, "Gee, could you bring some more bull, some bulls in?" I'm like, "Sure, but but a credible bull, someone who's got a, a cogent, you know, rigorous uh, argument, and uh, not someone, not a sell side cheerleader with pom poms." Anyway, John, I want to. I'll tell you what: when when we get a material, and I don't consider this yet, but when we get a material retreat in valuations, that's coupled with an improvement in market action, you can have Hussman on again, and he'll be a bull. How about all right, that? all right, <laughs> K Fab, K Fab is, is, is our witness. So, John. Yeah. Everyone, big thanks to you, John, for doing this. It's been fantastic, and uh, and and we all we all wish you the best of luck, and hopefully we'll see you again before too long. Thank you, John, so all much. Right. Thanks so much. Yeah. Nice to talk to you. Thanks. Awesome. And uh, with that, I don't know, KFAB, anything you want to say before we close the room here? Because we're going on two hours, and I'm told these rooms run on for too long. So yeah, no. The only thing I want to say is, um, you know, I <laughs> having been through a, a period comparable to John's meaning that when you have a period of really poor performance um, you know, it's, it's easy to shoot the messenger, so to speak. And regardless of what one thinks of, of John's track record and um, he comes at things in good faith. Number one, he's a super smart guy, as you talked about. Um, but the other thing is it's really inarguable. And, and it, I, I keep pointing people towards is just look at his valuation work. Look at the pervasiveness of how expensive the market became. This wasn't, you know, just the the nifty fifty or just the two thousand peak. Uh, and also his work on on profit margins because the bubble wasn't just in P; it was also in E. Um, so that just has huge ramifications from a cyclical perspective, and that that's why I think he's nailing it now, performance wise, because this this is like a a uh, you know almost a dream scenario for his hedged equity strategy. Um, and how he, how he goes about doing things. So don't don't shoot the messenger. Read his message. Yeah, and I, I would I would second that and just say it a slightly different way, which is, you know, when you think about strategists. John's an, not just a strategist; he's an investor, a manager. Their job's really to make you think. It's helpful if they're right more than they're wrong, and obviously, if they're wrong more than they're right, you're not going to listen to them after a while. You shouldn't. 
But at the end of the day, it's your, you, you do you, I'll do me. You know, it's one's responsibility to do as they wish. And I judge, I judge, I love to listen to people with different opinions. I know the haters keep saying, ah, this is a bear's room. George only allows bears in here. And I know the haters are listening. So any of your haters, if you have a credible bull that you want to bring into this room, please uh, tweet it out to me or send me a DM. We'll bring them in here. But I said credible. I say, I say rigorous. Okay. We'll have it. This is meant to be an open forum. I can't help it if the smartest guys I know are negative. That's just the way it is right now. So, and the people who get hostile and throw tomatoes at me, I think they're butthurt because they're getting run over. So, at any rate, um, on that note, it's been a fantastic room. Uh, we'll do it again before too long. Thanks, KFAF, for co-hosting, and thanks for all of your contributions from all of you for your questions. This has been terrific, and I wish everyone a good night. Take care. Bye-bye.